In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me the officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanabalt the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanabalt the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, as we as servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. My, 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 we got kings and queens, all these gates. We got people in Persia and Jerusalem, and what is going on in Nehemiah? That's what we're here to talk about, so why don't you bow with me? Cactus and Venue are joining us right now as well, so let's all pray together, and we're going to make sense of what we just read. Father, we uh, thank you for your holy word to us. Even historical books like Nehemiah, as we're going to see today, uh, contain very, very relevant truth for us in the 21st century. And so, Lord, as we match the experience of Nehemiah, the truth that you revealed in and through his writings with our lives today, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see that which you have prepared for us? And, Lord, may we do justice to understanding your word rightly, and then our commitment to is, is to apply it diligently to our lives. So, Lord, we're here because we love you, we're seeking you, we want to know you, and follow you this side of heaven. And we uh, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So let's start real simple. Here's something that almost all of us could agree on here today, even though it might be humbling, and that is that there are times in life, more often than we even realize, that we realize that help is going to have to come from the outside, not just the inside, right? I mean, we're Americans. We're like really bullish. We're very self-sufficient. We are tough people, at least we think we are. And yet the reality is, is that most of us, if we do an audit of our experience in our life, would realize there are plenty of times that we receive help from the outside. And that's not weak. That's not being self-sufficient. It's just realizing that we're finite in a very complex world. And we do it all the time without even knowing it. So a couple examples. You're driving up to Vegas. Why you're going to Vegas is another story, but you're driving up to Vegas and your car breaks down in the middle of the desert. And you're thinking, bummer, my car broke down. And you got two options before you. The first option is that you can do what some men do, get out of the car, open up the hood and pretend like you know what you're looking for as you stare at the engine, or you can forget that shenanigans, go back in your car, get your cell phone and call AAA to ask for some assistance. That's what most of us would do. We would choose door number two because we don't mind receiving help in a scenario like that. Or say you get sick and you feel like you're really sick. Something is wrong inside of you. You can stay home and try to think of all of your grandmother's home remedies and try to solve the problem yourself. Or you can go to the doctor, get some tests run, get a diagnosis, and try to get a healing plan going. Again, most of us would probably choose door number two. We seek help from outside of us. And the list goes on and on how often we do this. We get outside coaching for our golf game. We use repairmen when the appliance goes out. We use travel guides when we're visiting foreign places. We seek the help of a friend when we have a problem that we can't quite see our way out of. And in all of these situations, nobody accuses us of being weak or not self-sufficient. No, they just say that's part of living in a fallen world, that there are times that the help is going to come from the outside. And the reason that this is so important to own up to this morning is because as we talk about how to get a second wind in our walk with God, which is the subject before us this winter at our church, once again, what we're going to see today is that the answer is going to reside in resources outside of us, given to us by God himself, not some self-help methodology that our world talks about that somehow is going to help us look within. That's not what it's going to be about. It's going to be God himself giving us the answer for how we get rejuvenated in his presence. And it's going to be his help from the outside that gets us there. So with this understanding, here's our main point today as we move into chapter 2 of the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, the book that's all about how to get a second win with God. Look up here on the screen, and that is that core to a second wind is recognizing the movement of God in and around you. Let me repeat that. This is so important that you see this. Even if you don't see it now, you will. Core to getting a second wind is recognizing the movement of God in and around you. Now, before we start to flesh that out, let me briefly remind you what is happening in Nehemiah as we read for you earlier chapter 2. Because if you're new to Nehemiah, your head is spinning. But this will help. It's 445 B.C. when Nehemiah was written, toward the very end of the Old Testament period. Israel has been in exile for over 140 years. 
And by exile, I mean the Babylonians took them over, then the Persians took them over, and they took away their houses and their land and banished them to faraway places within the Persian Empire. For Nehemiah, he is in the capital, Susa. And they haven't just been banished from their destroyed temple and their destroyed homes. They're far away from God. They're under the discipline of God for their idolatry and all of their sin. And so they're, they're very separated from God spiritually and relationally. And so if ever a group of God's people needed a second wind, <laughs> Israel did at this time. That's the context of the book of Nehemiah. And we noted last week that things are starting to look up. Uh, the temple has been rebuilt in 516 B.C. An estimated 50,000 Jews had made their way back to Israel, but there were still about a million that had been displaced, so there was a lot of people still displaced, but some had gone back. But they still have a long way to go. Jerusalem is unprotected. The walls and the gates have been destroyed, symbolic of their torn-down spirituality. And so this is where Nehemiah enters in. He is in Susa, the winter capital of Persia at that time, and he's a godly man. You need to know that. He's one of the good guys. He understands truth. He understands grace. He knows who God is, and he wants to help connect his wayward people who are beaten up and beleaguered back with God. And to do that, he wants to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls and the gates around the city to give protection to the city, but also to build up their spirituality, their faith in God again. But he's the cupbearer to the king. And we'll talk about what that means a little bit more a little bit later, but a cupbearer was simply somebody who served the king wine which means that it was a really good job when things were peaceful because you had to taste the wine first to make sure it wasn't poisonous. But when things were really difficult, they went through a lot of cupbearers at that time. <laughs> but Nehemiah is still alive. He's the cupbearer to the king. And somehow he's been asking God somehow to, to help him get back to Jerusalem, to be released by the king in order to help his people. That's the context going into chapter 2. And so as we turn the page into chapter 2, what you're going to see is that everything changes as Nehemiah now begins to get hope. He begins to see the movement of God in his midst, and this gives him hope. And this will be the seedbed, the foundation for his second wind. Let me show you what I mean. When you look more closely at the passage of Scripture that was read for us earlier, one of the things that you notice is a twice-repeated phrase that I believe are the hinge phrases used by Nehemiah in this chapter that become core to Nehemiah's worldview as to how he viewed the circumstances, the chaotic circumstances in and around him and allowed him to see the movement of God in these difficult circumstances. So look with me at what he says in verses 8 and 18. Very similar phrasing of the same thing. He says in verse 8, For the good hand of my God was upon me. The good hand of my God was upon me. And then in verse 18, he says something similar. The hand of my God that had been upon me for good. Now, folks, this is very, very fascinating what is going on here. That Nehemiah is using three very common Hebrew words that he links together in a creative way to be a very, very powerful lens through which he views his circumstances. And those words are obviously here, good, hand, and God. 
Focus on those three words, good, hand, and God. That word good appears some 450 times in the Hebrew Old Testament, a very common word, and it means that which is favorable, that which is beneficial. You got that. The word hand appears over 1,500 times in the Hebrew Old Testament, and this is going to blow you away. That word literally means hand. That's what that word means. It's just a hand. And yet, a hand, when you think about it, 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 it is something that is organic. It's all about touch and care and protection. Hang on to that idea. And then the third word that Nehemiah uses is the word God. It's the Hebrew word Elohim that appears 2,500 times in the Old Testament. Three very common, everyday words, good hand and God, that used alone wouldn't necessarily be anything mind-blowing, save for the word God, but put together creatively, like Nehemiah does here, and look out. Because what Nehemiah does is he says, the good hand, the, the, the favorable and beneficial contact of God in my life is upon me. That hand that's all about protection and care and goodness is resting upon my very soul. This good hand of God is on me. What's that about? I've been made in God's image. I've been redeemed by him. Israel was redeemed by God. And Nehemiah is saying what the New Testament would call grace is now upon him. Isn't that interesting? And as we're going to see in a minute, Nehemiah, seeing through the lens of this good hand that was upon him, saw the movement of God in his circumstances in profound and life-giving ways. And this was going to give him his second wind. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. If you're thinking like me, you're thinking, well, Jamie, it says that the good hand of the Lord was upon Nehemiah. <laughs> it doesn't say it was on me. I mean, Nehemiah was a really godly man. He was a prophet. You already said that. I mean, he's kind of special. So obviously the hand of God was upon him. But how does that affect me? It's interesting. When you look at this phrase, the good hand of the Lord upon people in the Old Testament, uh, it explodes in meaning, especially when you read the book of Ezra, which is the book that comes right before Nehemiah, because Ezra used this phrase as well. And so let's start to unpack this a little bit. Look at Ezra 8, verse 18, and using this same phrase and, and look at how it takes us even further in this. Ezra says, and by the good hand of our God on, say it with me, us, they brought, say it again, us, a man of discretion. Interesting. Nehemiah says that the good hand of the Lord was upon him. Ezra takes us further and says, no, 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 no. the good hand of the Lord is upon us, meaning all of Israel. Again, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, okay, you got me so far. His hand was upon Israel. Doesn't say his hand was upon me. Well, look at what Ezra says in Ezra 8, chapter 22, or chapter 8, verse 22. He, he now explodes it into principial form when he says, the hand of our God is for good on, say it with me, all who seek him. I looked up that word all in the original Hebrew, and you know what it means? All. <laughs> That's right, all. You see, there's the principle. For all who seek him, for all who find him, his hand is upon them. So maybe now you can understand in the New Testament, when people say, when, when the New Testament says that we have come to faith in God through Jesus Christ, 
His grace is now upon you. Isn't that amazing? His grace. Look what Paul would say in Romans 1, verse 7. Just throw that one up here, guys. One more. Romans 1, verse 7. Paul would begin. Romans 1, verse 7. One more click. We're trying to get there. Come on, one more click. There we go. Perfect. I knew you could do it. Romans 1, verse 7 says this. It says, grace to you and peace from our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting. Paul would write 13 letters to the churches, 13 epistles we call them. And in the beginning of every one, he would say the same thing, like a scratch CD. He would say, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not I hope he gives you grace. Not I hope he gives you peace. It's an indicative statement. His grace and his peace are upon you. Very similar to Nehemiah's time. The good hand of the Lord is upon you. It's true simply by being in Christ. Simply by being made in God's image and redeemed by him. His grace is upon us. Folks, listen, it seems very clear to me from the Bible that this good hand is upon all who seek him, on all who come to faith through him in Christ. God's goodness is firm and sure. It's unshakable. And in recognizing his goodness, now don't miss this, you will see his movement when you look at your life through the goodness of God that is upon you. That's the seedbed of our second wind. I want to show you how Nehemiah experienced this. This is actually a very experiential message that we're looking at today. I mean, it's truth-based, but, but we're not going to wiggle out of this and the implications for our lives today. And so let's ask a question, taking this even further, of Nehemiah. If he was here today, we'd say, okay, Nehemiah, you're seeing the, the, the good hand of the Lord upon you, but specifically how? Did you see this good hand upon you? Specifically, how did you see the movement of God in your midst? Because you're in quite a pickle here. You're in some very difficult circumstances here. Three things I want you to notice from chapter 2 that Nehemiah affirms. Three things that aren't the be-all and the end-all of God's movement. There's plenty more things he does. But these are great examples that Nehemiah experienced that, again, through the lens of God's goodness, he, he started to get great hope even in difficult circumstances. First, notice with me that Nehemiah recognized and affirmed God's provision of favor with other people. Nehemiah got favor with others, and as we're going to see, he chalks this up to God's goodness. This is found in the first eight verses of chapter 2. Nehemiah, as you might remember, is a cupbearer to the king. It's a prestigious position. It's one in which he has the ear of the king, but still, he's just a cupbearer. It's not like he's the key advisor to the king. And as we noted, he's been, been praying for an opportunity to share with the king his desire to go back to Jerusalem. And so it says in verse 1 there, I don't know if you caught it, that wine was before the king. That's Nehemiah's job. They were probably having a festival. The month of Nisan is the first month of the Persian year, so it was probably New Year's time, and they were celebrating. And the king notices that Nehemiah is sad. That word can also mean depressed. But he noticed that he's not physically sick, so it must be an emotional thing. And the king inquires about this. And Nehemiah has been praying about this. So he throws up another quick prayer to heaven. And he says, okay, this is the time. And he drops on the king his desire to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and fortify the city and thus rebuild his people's spirituality. Now, it's very important that you dial into this. What most people don't realize, because they didn't read the book of Ezra before they read Nehemiah, is that this is the same king, Artaxerxes, 
that in Ezra chapter 4 put a stop to the building of the walls years earlier. They tried to rebuild the walls earlier, but there were enemies of the Jews, and the enemies said, you don't get it. These Jews used to be very powerful. They rebelled against Pharaoh. They developed their own nation. They're not a people to trifle with. So if you allow the walls to be rebuilt again, they're going to rebel against you, and you're going to lose them from within the Persian Empire. So Artaxerxes put a stop to the building of these walls. So it's a very, very gutsy thing that Nehemiah is doing here, prevailing upon his relationship to the king to get him to start the building again, even though he was the one who had stopped it. That's why it says he was afraid. But the king and the queen really like Nehemiah. And so after inquiring how long he's going to be away, and I don't know if you know how long he's going to be away, but chapter 5 will tell us it's 12 years. If I asked the elders for a 12-year sabbatical, I don't think I'd get it. <laughs> And, and so 12 years he's going to be away from the Persian, from the king. The king and the queen say, you can go. I mean, talk about favor. And then I love what happens next. Kind of like when your teenager asks for the car and you say yes, and then the teenager has the guts to also ask for the gas card, and you're like going, oh, my gosh. Nehemiah doesn't just ask for the keys to the car here to go to Jerusalem. He says, oh, and by the way, could I get some letters of introduction, some arm protection, and can I have all the wood to rebuild the walls and the gates? And the king says, yes. I mean, it just comes out of nowhere. This is not stuff that you would think would happen. This is incredible favor that Nehemiah has here. And then this entire section, here's the key, this entire eight verses of chapter 2 ends with Nehemiah saying in verse 8, look up here on the screen, this is the core. He says, and the king granted me what I asked for. Why? Read it with me. For the good hand of my God was upon me. You know what people would say today? They'd say, boy, did Nehemiah get lucky. Fate was upon him. Things were smiling with him. I guess his circumstances just worked out. Nehemiah would say hogwash to all of that. And Nehemiah would say this was all about God. This was God working through the king. This was God working in my circumstances. I'm beat up. I'm beleaguered. My people are even worse. But I see God in the midst of this favor. Why? Because he was looking through the lens of God's goodness. He believed God was good. He believed that God was with him. And he wasn't fooled for a minute that this favor that he was experiencing was God. And what you people need to see is that this buoyed his spirit. And this is going to buoy the spirits of the Israelites. And this is going to be the foundation for their second wind. And so here's the deal. I was thinking of all of you in Cactus and Venue, you too this week. And I thought, I wonder how many times you and I get blessed with a good interchange with our boss at work. And we fail to realize it was God. I wonder how many times you and I get a tax return that we didn't see coming and we think, boy, aren't I lucky? And no, it was God. I wonder how many times you and I receive forgiveness from a friend or from a spouse when we don't deserve it. And heaven someday is going to reveal it was God who changed their heart and mind. See, I think God does these things all the time in our lives. I just think we fail to see it because we're not looking through the lens of his good hand that is upon you and me. My friend Tim Kimmel's here. Tim uh, says about his marriage quite often that when he married Darcy, he married up. And uh, I can relate to that because when I think of my wife, Kim, I've been married 25 years, I, I am under no illusion that I married up. 
And, and, and the reason I can say that with so much confidence is that though my wife is a lot of things, one of the things that she is, and you got to know her to believe this, but she is one of the most naturally joyful people that I know. And she's been that way just for years. She is naturally joyful, and I can promise you guys, I'm not. I mean, when I married her, it was a value add to the relationship. <laughs> she will, she's a full-time teacher, and she'll get, call me on her way home from work just about every day, and every day it's the same thing. No matter what happened that day, she's like, hey, baby, how are you? I'm like, what right do you have to be so happy for? And I'll say, how was your day? And she'll say, you know, all the kids were this and all this was going on in school. And she'll say, and every day it's the same thing. She'll say, but have I told you yet how much I love you? She'll say that to me. And then she'll say, if I told you how great you are, and I can't wait to get home and see you. And guys, there are times that I think this woman's got to be deaf, dumb, and blind. <laughs> because I can tell you right now, I got empirical evidence that I'm not great. I have empirical evidence that I am moody, I am inconsistent. See, I'm just like you guys. I'm on my best behavior at church, and at home, I'm not. <laughs> and, and so my wife has every reason to not think I'm great, but she, she does think I'm great. In fact, there's times where we're arguing, and, you know, and, and, and she'll be mad at me, because she does get mad at me because I'm a dope, and, and, and we'll be arguing. And, and I'll say to her, whatever happened to that Jamie's great, that Jamie high that you used to have? Like, That's gone. And, but you know what I realized years ago? I realized two things years ago. One, I realized I'm going to ride this wave for as long as it lasts. That's the first thing I realized. And secondly, I realized I don't deserve it, and it's God. It's God who has graced me. I'm going to cry saying this. He's graced me with a wife that is so patient and wonderful, naturally joyous. There's a day that goes by that I don't thank him for it. But I'm under no illusion. It is God's gift to me. And you see, God has gifted you. In so many ways as well, even in the everyday mundane things, but you got to open your eyes and see it. His good hand is upon you in Christ. It is. It knows me a second thing that, that uh, Nehemiah noticed about his circumstances. And again, this one escapes many of us today, but this is really real for him. And that is that he saw God's hand of protection and justice in his life. Now, you've got to dial into this one because it's, it's kind of hard to see, and you've got to be really careful with this. Nehemiah's circumstances are still really bad, and they're about to get worse, and yet he's going to see God's protection in the midst of it. So how does that work? When Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, he immediately runs into some resistance. We could have predicted that. The Persians are in control. Most of them don't like the Jews. It's no longer friendly territory. And so all the leaders are not like the king at all. And so look at verses 9 and 10. Nehemiah is speaking. He says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now, now these are two powerful guys. Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. Tobiah was the governor of Amid-Gilead. And they were neighboring provinces of Judah, Jerusalem at that time. And, and these guys had a lot of power. And for a lot of reasons, they didn't like the Jews. I mean, it was classic bigotry and class warfare back then, just like it exists today. We tend to not like people like us, and they didn't like the Jews. And there's also some history. Tobiah here is probably the Tobiah that's mentioned in Ezra chapter 2. You can read about it on your own, verse 60, where it says that he wanted to be included in the priesthood of Israel, but because he wasn't a Jew, 
he was considered unclean. That's the word they labeled on him, unclean. And this offended his ego, and so he was that more, much more vengeful toward the Jews. And so when it says that they were displeased greatly, you need to know that's the strongest way of saying it in the Hebrew. I mean, it borders lines on hatred. That's how much they were against what Nehemiah was doing. And we're going to see in the coming weeks some of their shenanigans because it's going to get even more tense with these guys. But look at Nehemiah's response in verses 19 to 20. This is where we need to see what, uh, what seeing it through the lens of God does. It says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, here it is, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we are his servants, and will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Whoa. I, I want you to think of the converse. I want you to think of what Nehemiah could have said, what many of us would have knee-jerked response in his stead. Because I know what we would have done. We would have said, you guys don't get it. The king has signed letters. The king is behind me. See the army? See the wood that I got? You think you're going to stand in my way? I fried bigger fish than you. I got the king. See, that's what we would have said. But we would have relied on this human-based, human thing going on in our circumstances, and we would have tried to win given that. That's what a lot of Christians do. Not Nehemiah. Did you notice his words? The God of heaven will make us prosper. Yeah, the king was in the equation, but it was mainly God that Nehemiah saw in and through his circumstances, even protecting him when the waters were going to get rough. Don't miss this, guys. He saw his life and circumstances through the lens of God's good hand on him, and that showed him God's movement of protecting him. God was protecting Nehemiah. And he knew it. And though there were social, political, relational, personal things all going on in in that, he saw God in that. And it's going to give him a great infusion that was going to become a second wind. And you see, again, I wonder how many times does God run interference in our lives today, protecting us when things get threatening, but we don't see it's God. I mean, I thought about this week. How many times are you and I one decision, one decision away from doing a very, very sinful thing, but God, who loves you and loves me, runs interference in our hearts and prevents us from doing it? How many times do you think that happens? More, more so than I think we realize. How many times do you think we might be just a gnat's eyelash away from being a victim at work? Somebody's about ready to, to, to come against us because they, maybe they don't like us, but we never see it. But God runs interference and changes their hearts. See, I think that happens more often than we might realize. And, and I could go on and on. I, I think there's plenty of times that God provides protection. And please realize, folks, this doesn't mean that we won't have trouble and adversity. I mean, Nehemiah is going to have plenty of that. It simply means that there's many times it could be much worse. <laughs> and because it isn't much worse, we see it through the lens of God's hand upon us and we see his movement in protecting us. That's what Nehemiah saw. You guys have heard me say this. I, I say something quite often here to the staff. It just became sort of a mantra a few years ago for me that when I have a bad day, because I do, and things go uh, you know, kind of sour and we're facing formidable challenges as a church or me as a parent or whatever, and I'm driving home kind of down, 
I, I say to myself quite often and to the Lord, I say, if this is as bad as it gets, if this is the worst thing that happens to me this week, I'm a blessed man. I say that all the time. And, and you know, that's not pie-in-the-sky self-help therapy that I'm engaging in there. That's actually really good theology. Because I believe God is sovereign, and I believe he is good, and I believe that his hand of grace is upon me in Jesus Christ. And as our singers sang about, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one. Jesus said they can kill the body, but they can't touch your soul. The worst thing that could ever happen to you in any given day is that you would die and bummer, go have to be with God in eternal bliss for all of eternity. As Paul the Apostle would say, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. I mean, that's the worst thing that could happen to us. And so the reality is, is that you and I are so blessed and we need to see God's hand of protection upon us. Nehemiah saw it and it's going to give him a second wind. And it's the same for you and I. How you see in your circumstances right now? And then finally, notice with me a third movement of God that Nehemiah recognized in his specific circumstances. And this will surprise some of you, but it's important that you see this. And that is that God moved in his life through giving him a needed dose of wisdom. Of wisdom. And so you heard it read earlier, but when Nehemiah finally gets to Jerusalem, he rests for three days, and then he has to hatch his plan, and he's got two huge hurdles to jump. The first hurdle is that he needs to assess the state of the walls around Jerusalem, but do so without being detected, because again, he's got Sanballat and Geshem and Tobiah and all these enemies, and they're going to try to stop him. So that's the first hurdle. The second hurdle is that he needs to convince these beat-up group of Jews that are now back in Jerusalem, that they need to try to build the wall again. But they all remember Ezra chapter 4, and they're not going to want to start building again because they've taken enough heat. And so it's interesting. Every commentator that I have read points out that at this point in verses 11 through 16, Nehemiah does something one commentator calls clever, another one calls wise, another one calls sneaky. And that is that what he does is when he goes to inspect the walls, let me read for you the words that are actually used. It says, he arose in the night. He told no one. He had one animal to ride on, but he had a group of people with him. He inspected the walls, and then he returned while it was still night. One commentator calls this very secretive. And what all of them point out is that he's using some real wisdom here to not draw attention to himself, so that he might be able to inspect things and develop a plan that he's been praying about without taking too much heat for doing so. Very wise thing he does. And then the second thing he does that's very wise is that in verses 17 to 18, he goes to the Jewish leaders, the officials, and he makes a fourfold argument that is just almost inarguable. You can't argue against it. He says, see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins. And then, as we've seen in verse 18, he says, But take heart, the hand of God is upon me for the good. And then he says, And the king has spoken. So now he brings a king into it. And he says, And, and you know what? We're in trouble, but God's hand is upon us. The king has spoken. So then he says, Let's build. And, and, and the Jews at that time, the officials, can't wiggle their way out of it. They say, We're with you. And yet what you need to see more than anything else is what Nehemiah then does with this wisdom that God, or this wisdom that he has and where he says he got it. Look up here on the screen and look at verse 12. This is the hinge verse. He says, then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one, here it is, what my God had put into my heart to do. 
Nehemiah was here today and we said to him, where'd you get the wisdom you got? He would say, God. See, many times today, you and I do the opposite. We get an infusion of wisdom, like we're at work and we go, man, that's a really good plan that I just thought of. I think I'm going to implement that. Or, or, or our kid is, is rebelling and, and we get creative and we say, I, I know how I can, I can kind of change him and get him to do that, you know, and, 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 and all these things in our lives. And when we get that wisdom, honestly, we go to bed and we think, boy, am I smart. We think, you know, that education paid off and those Amazon.com books I've been reading have really helped and I'm going to watch a few more Dr. Phil episodes and we think, boy, are we, we really smart. And all the while, God's going, <laughs> I gave that to you. I'm the one that gave you that wisdom. See, James 1.5 says this. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without finding, without reproach, and it will be given to him. See, you asked God to give you wisdom. He did. But Nehemiah said this was his movement then in my midst. Just three examples here, guys. Favor with others, protection and justice, the, the giving of wisdom, but as we turn the page into chapter 3 next week, we're going to see that this starts to, as I said earlier, buoy the spirits of Nehemiah and the people because now they're seeing life through the lens of God's goodness and it's starting to change their perspective. I, I sat in my office this week and I thought, well, what other things do we see around us that could show us the movement of God if we will be willing to look for it through the lens of his goodness? Look up here. This is a list I came up with, and these are all things. How about answers to prayer? You know, many times we pray. If you guys are like me, I pray. And I say, God, you know, run interference here and do that. And, and then the situation works out, but I forgot that I prayed about it. <laughs> I forgot that I asked God to do something, and God showed up and did it. I had a wonderful email this week based on our, our discussion last week on prayer. If you guys remember, I ended last week by saying, let's make a commitment to not plan and pray, but to pray and plan. So many of us tend as Christians plan, and then we ask God to bless our plans, to baptize them with his grace, and we think we're doing well. But, but Nehemiah shows us to pray first, then plan. So I challenge you guys with that. I got an email this week. It was really awesome. The guy said that, you know, uh, middle of the day, on one day this week, I get a text from my wife, and he said we had a very, very significant issue come up in our lives that needed to be addressed. And he said, the second that I got it, I, I just got into to mail mode, and he said, I, I got on my texting, and I just texted her the response and what we should do, and I hit send. And he said, the second I hit send, I remembered what we had talked about Sunday. So, so I immediately called my wife, and I said, Ixnay on the text day, don't, don't, uh, don't read it. Don't go any further with that text. He said, just ignore it, and let's pray for the rest of the day, and we'll talk about it tonight. He said, by the time they got tonight, the whole issue had resolved itself. And then he said, in a kind of a sarcastic way, what a surprise. <laughs> and we all know it was God. See, see, sometimes we need to see his movement in our lives, and we just need to look closely at how he's answering prayers. How about the second one there? Thoughts and experiences in his word. One of the things I love about Scottsdale Bible Church is that we have a very, very high view of God's word. We believe that these are 66 books written over a 1,500-year period of time, all overseen by God, that this is infallible, authoritative, and inerrant. This is his truth to us. And here's the cool thing, guys. God meets us in his word. So there are times when I am dry and, 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 and I need an infusion of his grace. I need to see his good hand. And so I'll just say to God in the beginning of the week, okay, God, this week I'm reading Romans. And, and it's 16 chapters, and I got seven days, so I'm going to read two and a half chapters a day. And God, would you please meet me in your word? 
And I can't tell you how many times I'll be having that time with God and a thought will jump off the page. Something, the Spirit will speak to me through his word. I'll have an insight and understanding. I'm literally nodding my head as I'm reading, going, thank you, God. I'm experiencing him in his word. You see, we can experience God that way on a regular basis. Or how about the sen- a sense of God's presence with us? I've heard more Christians give testimony to in the darkest times of their experience that all of a sudden they were surprised. C.S. Lewis called it being surprised by joy. They'd be surprised by a deep sense of, of peace in the midst of the turmoil. And folks, that's God. How about a timely word from another? You know, sometimes we're in church and somebody will just say, hey, man, it's great to see you. You know, how, how you doing? And you say, well, I'm kind of hurting right now. But boy, you know, God is with you. He loves you. I'm with you. Do you want to have coffee? I mean, could that be God using a timely word from another person to, 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 to show you his movement in your life? An unexpected blessing. I mean, many times we get blessed, and again, we, we don't realize it's God. Somebody once said the definition of a coincidence is that God performs a miracle and prefers to remain anonymous. And I think there's times where you and I experience a blessing, and we think, oh, isn't that just wonderful? No, it was God. Or how about an infusion of faith and trust to persevere and hang in there? Sometimes you don't think you can go any further. There's no way you can get through this day. But lo and behold, you get to the end of the day and you're still living. You get to the end of the day and you're still there. What's that about? That's God who's giving you the strength to persevere and hang in there. As the psalmist said, though there's weeping at night, there is joy in the morning. It's going to come. He loves you. You see, there's so much more. There's so many ways that God moves in our lives. But here's the point of today. If you refuse to see his goodness, if you refuse to honor him as good in the midst of your very life, you will not see his movement. Somebody once said to me, and I think this is is true, it, it, it has teeth to it, that the greatest sin we can commit before God is to see him as not good. And yet how many times as Christians do we do that? Every time somebody comes up to me with a why question, they're on the verge of saying God's not good. Why did God allow this? Why did he allow the economy to go south? Why did he allow... I'm telling you, I'm not saying that why questions are wrong. I get it. But the reality is there's a very fine line when we're on the verge of asking why questions in doubting the goodness of God in our lives. And I'm telling you, that's a much bigger sin than anything else we could commit. Why? Because he loves you. And he is good. And it's through seeing his good hand upon you that you're going to see his movement in your life. And that becomes the source of our second wind. So let's go back to where we started. Sometimes the help is going to come from the outside. And this I know. God is constantly moving and working in and around us. We just need to see it. We need to see it by opening up our eyes and looking for it through the lens of his goodness. And when you do, like Nehemiah, I promise you, your second wind is starting to blow. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for all that you've given us in Christ. I think of Ephesians chapter 1 where we have been blessed in the heavenly realms with everything that we need in Christ. As Peter says, everything that we need for life and godliness is in him. And so God, as we've talked much more specifically about that today, about the fact that even in difficult circumstances, when we feel like we're in our, in our own personal exile, that like Nehemiah, we can choose to see life through the lens of your goodness, this, this good hand that is upon us. And that, Lord, when we do, we see things like favor and protection and justice and wisdom and so much more. 
as we see your movement in our midst. So, Lord, I pray for each person here today, as well as at Cactus and at Venue and watching online, that, Lord, as they are going through their own issues, that, God, that they would be encouraged today, that as they lean upon your goodness and lean upon your grace, that there is great strength in that and a second wind can be found for us. Thank you, Lord, for that. Do that in us, we pray, in Christ's name. And we all say together, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next Sunday.